welcome to Pure Podcast. I'm Mike. This is Orlando, and we are on episode 65 plus one. What? 66. I just wanted to make sure we got it right. Because last time, if you caught that with Hustle at Home Mom, I was like totally off. So You I, know what the best way to make sure we got it right? Would have just like said put 66. It, put a paper on top of the camera so I didn't miss it. No, but you could have been a little less confusing. And instead of saying like no, no, 65 but, plus one, so you could have just said. 66. I just want to see the reaction on YouTube on Mike's face when I said 65. Because <laughs> 30 seconds before we went live on the podcast, Mike had said, remember now, what episode is this? And I said 66. So I purposely did that. So I don't know. We'll re- I'll rewind this after, you know, we dropped this episode and see how Mike reacted to. Did he have a cringe face on? I think did he it was a, like, just, what did Orlando just do? I think it was just like I was staring at you like, are you serious right now? I know. That's why I threw that out there. I still kind of have that look, but, you know, there we go. It's okay. That's how we roll. That's how we roll. Hey, so what, what, this is what, what episode is this? Not number, but what are we doing? <laughs> so if you couldn't tell by the intro music, this is oh, one of our. Oh, that's right. This is one of our. How do you feel about that music? I think it's great. It's perfect for what we're doing here. Because this is like this is like a little more like sophisticated, like anything we do, is sophisticated. sophisticated. But you know, it's 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 ironically sophisticated in the sense that we're doing you know book reviews, so it's got to have that kind of hoity-toity feel to it. I don't know. I, there's a part of me. I there's a. I don't know. Maybe. I guess I feel like like we should be like in suits and stuff, and like sitting on those lounge chairs with the fire in the background and. Talking about books, like yeah. with that music. Exactly. That's maybe the we'll, point. Maybe we'll do that. I mean, if they're <laughs> oh, not watching on though. YouTube, they don't they don't know that that's not what we're doing. So That is true. That is true. But I, I, I think it's funny because we've never discussed the intro music. We can't just let it fly. And some of you on the YouTube comments have commented or on the DMs how you thought it was hilarious. So at least you caught on, right? Because we don't take ourselves too seriously. At least I don't. Do you? No. Okay, just check it. No. Just check it. All right. So hey, level up review. Book two. Yeah, book two. So we are doing uh the four hour work week. Uh, it's interesting because um we've kind of decided w- with these level up reviews that our books are going to be kind of cover a gambit of of topics and things in order to um have the biggest impact on our lives individually, on the reselling community. Um, and we recognize that one of the most powerful things you can do is just kind of finance books, right? Like we did Rich Man in Babylon, which I think was great. I think, it, I believe if you apply all of those things from that book, uh, you, when you retire or get closer to retire, are going to have a ton of money. Uh, and then we jump into this next book, which is kind of an interesting, it, it, it's a little controversial. Um, and it kind of has, in a lot of ways, opposite opinions on a lot of the things as far as don't wait, don't defer, don't think about later, kind of think about the now. And so um, it's definitely a different book than what we did last time. Um, some of the concepts, and again, we're going to agree with some of it, we're going to disagree with some of it, and our opinions only are opinions, right? Like they only matter so much. So we're not claiming to be experts, but we're reading books from people who do claim to be experts, and we want to tell you what they say. And maybe how we think it can apply to us and how it'll apply to you. And if you want to, you know, add something in the comments and say, here's how I'm doing this in my life and it works or that doesn't work for me. Or you want to tell us we're completely wrong and we misinterpreted what the author was saying. We're game for that. You know, in a nice way. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, okay. But before we get started, I want to point something out. So Mike, can you, if you're watching the YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, you can check us on the YouTube. Show, show the camera your book real quick. So this, I think, to me, is a legit five-star Amazon seller. Right? Well, I did buy new. 
You did buy new. Okay, but I bought mine used. So those of you listening to the podcast, you just got to imagine this. So I have a book that has no dust jacket on it. Okay. Completely gone, which I understand. It's a, yeah. it's an acceptable I don't really condition. like my dust covers usually anyways. they And then they slapped an old school like FBA label on the back. Okay, nice. Right? Yeah. And then for bookmarks. Which can damage your books, man. It's true. I mean, it, it is damaged. I mean, and then on top of that, I have the lovely now. This could be gross, or this could be like what, like somebody really does something important. I have, if you're watching the YouTube and you can see this, if you're listening to the podcast, maybe you can hear it. No, you can't hear it. I have toilet paper bookmarks in my book. I I waited till today to remove these. Why That's toilet gross. paper? Why like? Well, it's kind of gross that you left them in there just to show on the podcast, and okay. who knows how long you've been um, reading something. I mean, toilet paper, really? But Ugh. did this go through a prep center, like? What went through the mind of this Amazon seller to get this book to just and the label's not even like straight. It's just like crooked on the book. Just slap you, on. you completely blocked out the microphone there, Alondo. Oh, sorry. It's it's straight. It's not even straight on the book. It's crooked. And then the toilet paper. Like, and it's not like it's hiding. Like, actually, I took out one piece. There were multiple pieces of toilet paper inside this book. So, you know, when we're doing a book review, yeah, it's not about the condition of the book. You know the saying, you can't judge a book by its cover? Ah, ha, ha. Yeah, okay. That's kind of what we're doing here. So That sounded so scripted right now. That was not <laughs> scripted at all. Zero. But seriously, I look at it. It's kind of like I bought my son a book where he has to do some summer reading for school. And his book was supposed to be new and it was damaged. Mm. And you know how what great lengths I go to to make things right? And people get away with it. So, you know, anyways... I, I don't know why I took that. Maybe I just wanted to rant real quick, but hey, the book yeah, is still so, good. Sometimes it's good to get the perspective of the buyer, right? That, that you know, when a buyer gets something and they're not happy with it, because who knows? Maybe that seller is like, no, this is this is good condition, you know? Oh, toilet paper bookmarks? Hey, you know, like. That's just, I'm going to remove this is. off the table so we don't have to, our watchers yeah. don't have to watch it on we'll YouTube. We'll have to do some disinfectant wipe too, potentially. Uh, we're not going to go there. All mm-hmm. right. Anyways, let's get into the book. This, right. this was an interesting read. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and we're only um, we're gonna try and do most books unless it's like exceptionally long or very 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 good. Um, we'll we'll probably try and keep them just to two episodes. I think that's a decent amount of time to kind of cover half the book, and then another episode to cover the second half. Um, and so this first half, uh, it gave us a lot of, I think, some of the. Um, the methods, or not even really the methods, but the theories behind what it is that Tim Ferriss is doing here. So uh, just to give a quick overview of the book, and then Orlando and I are going to kind of go through section by section, kind of condense it down, give you some of our highlights and, and maybe some things we uh, didn't agree with from each section. Uh, but Or but, what we agreed with. Or agreed with, yep. Um, I think that's when I, I said highlights. So it was, you know, kind of the good parts. No, I know. Highs I know. and lows. I, I just get the sense that this is going to be a, a fun conversation Mike and I are going to have. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I think I think we're probably on the the same page more than we think. So we'll see how it comes okay, out. All right, we'll see. Um, but anyway, so Tim Ferriss uh, wrote this book essentially in order to teach people how to um, kind of change their perspectives and their outlook on what it means to work hard, what it means to um, be successful and to be happy, and kind of what your purpose is in life. And so one of the things that he's doing here is he's trying to say we can be more effective with making money in a shorter amount of time, uh, which then frees up time to do other things. So really that's kind of like the sell, right? Like 
you can do less. You can work a four hour work week. And, and I think when we talked before, you kind of said like, I think there's more to it than that. And there is. Uh, but really like his times are he's like only work two hours in, in a day doing this. He's all, but that's not where I want you to end off. Like, so he really is pushing, like you can do in a work week, four hours and be successful. Right. And so then he starts to give kind of his methodology behind that. Um, and one of the things I thought that was interesting that he said right off the, ba the back, um, he originally, one of the first companies he started was a company that sold um, like supplements. And so he said he was like a drug dealer, which is kind of a funny thing to say. Uh, but he would say it's kind of difficult to explain to people because he says, what I do with my time and what I do for money are completely different things. And I think that kind of encapsulates what this book is about. Because a lot mm -hmm. of times when somebody Thank asks you. you like, so what do you do? Or, you know, that's one of the first things because our identity is so tied into our work. Whereas he's kind of trying to push what do I do? Well, I go on skiing trips and I do this and I do that. And yeah, I make money, but that's not my life. Right. So what do you think about that? Like, especially seeing that we talk about reselling being a lifestyle. Um, how does that make you feel when it's kind of like what you do for money and what your life is, is kind of two different things? I struggle with it in the sense that as I'm reading this, I, I'm a very big proponent of loving the process of what you're doing. Right. So I'm never a fan of even if it's one hour now, sometimes there are those moments that you got to do things that you don't want to do. Right. You got to eat that frog like we've talked mm -hmm. about. But I'm very big on like, especially now, now that I've kind of stepped away from, you know, the normal, I guess you want to call it the nine to five or the corporate world or whatever. Right. I was in education. I'm very big on doing what you enjoy doing. Now, I enjoyed education. I loved education. But I love what I'm doing now. So for me, it's if I have to separate them into two different worlds, to me, it's automatically a problem. Hmm. Right. Because to me, it, it's all intertwined. Like and and I get what he I get I get what he's saying where. You know, some I guess for some, it, it all depends on what you're OK with. Right. If you're OK doing something you necessarily don't like to make money to allow you to do the things you like, then go for it. Like if that, and, and that's pretty much, I would say that's like 99% of the world, right? It, it's very yeah. seldom that somebody that I run across, I mean, I would say in education, probably 99% of the people I ran into loved what he did, at least where we were at. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know other teachers at other districts that like, that's the rarity too. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I would say if somebody had asked me, they're one in the same. Right. Like I love re I love going to garage sales on Saturday morning. I love finding those deals during Q4. I love connecting buyers with their products. Like I enjoy that. So to me, it's still the good life. But would you say, and I, I get what you're saying with that. And I think I think what the extreme of this though would be if money was not an issue, if you had an infinite amount of money, would you still spend your days? reselling, listing, taking, right? Like, so the idea is okay. like, you, you might enjoy what you do and it might bring you some value and purpose. However, it's that you're enjoying your work. Whereas his concept kind of is, don't like work is work, like play is play. There's kind of like a, a separation. Yeah, see, but I honestly don't know what I would do. I mean, what what would we do? Yeah, like, I, like I, that, that's, that's the hard part. It's because there, there becomes a time and he talks about idle time. Like you're not just doing stuff to have more idle time. Mm -hmm. And I agree because being idle is miserable. Yeah. Completely miserable. I mean, when you're a kid in the summertime, you love summer, but man, there, there are those days where you're just, 
you kind of wish you were in school. You just don't let anybody know. It, that totally reminds me. And this like perfect quote, I think. Um, you, we did that, the office, the office space, uh, like reenactment, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, the so there was a, a quote from office space where the guy is sitting inside his living room and the neighbor guy comes over and he says, um, like, you know, I just wish I had all this money and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, what would you do if you had all this money? And he goes, if I had like, if I had millions of dollars, I would do nothing. I would sit on the couch and do I remember nothing that, yeah. all day. And the that guy, his story. yeah. And the neighbor's response goes, well, my cousin does that. And he's a loser, right? Like, so the idea is like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of an interesting concept because it's true. Like sometimes and he talks about that is people have this fantasy and, and here he talks about like um, having a million dollars, right? Is the fantasy that people have. And he says, but that's not really the fantasy. He says a million dollars in the bank account isn't the fantasy. The fantasy is the lifestyle of complete freedom. It supposedly allows. Agreed. Right. I mean, that's what he says, right? There. I'll read in just before that. He says, this is on page eight of the version from the link. And we both got the same version. That's yeah. good. All right. You know, people don't want to be millionaires. They want to experience what they believe only millions can buy. Right. But, but millions can buy all kinds of things. Yeah. And I think that's one of the main things I disagree with the book on is, and part of it is just a worldview thing. But I really believe that purpose and responsibility actually gives you a better life than just seeking happiness, right? Because there's kind of this idea here in the book presented a lot of like experiences. I definitely think you should try and travel more and get life experiences. But I think there's almost this underlying view of like happiness is the main goal. Like you should just be happy. And I think there's something, there's a reason we we seek that. But at the same time, like you said, when when you're happy and you're kind of just idle, like it it ends up not being necessarily good for you, your whole being, you know, oftentimes it's being responsible. It's, it's having responsibility and purpose that actually gives you kind of that reason to sit up straight and the reason to feel good about yourself because you feel like you're doing something valuable as opposed to just, I'm happy. Well, I agree, but he takes it even further. And now we're going to jump. Like we need to jump. Okay. All right. You jumped it. Cause you talked, you talked about how he, he doesn't even say it's happy. He says, this is on page 51. He talks about excitement is the more practical synonym for happiness. And it is precisely what you should strive to chase. To me, that is, I, that would be miserable. Yeah. I, I just, I, and I know, I know for some of you that are listening right now, you're going to shut us off in the next few seconds. And I'm sorry if you do, but I can tell you as a 40 year old guy, that's, I know I'm 40. I've lived a lot of life. Some of the life I chose not to live, some of the life I chose to live. And in those 40 years, I will tell you, jumping from excitement to excitement to excitement is exhausting. Yeah. It is, and, and ultimately, it's unfulfilling. unfulfilling yeah. Right? What you're looking for, and we, you know, we don't want to get too philosophical here, is you want to get into a place of joy, which there's a, there's a piece of contentment to that, right? Where you're, you're, you're satisfied. You still want more. I think there's still that inner drive, mm -hmm. but there's a place that regardless of circumstance, there is still joy. There's still, there's not, not happiness for, but this, this kind of, I don't want to say, maybe I'll say like a state of peace. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's kind of why I mentioned like the idea of like purpose, right? Like when you, when you have responsibility in your life, whether it's kids or whether it's a spouse or whether it's, you know doing something for other people, whatever that responsibility is, making somebody else's life better, it gives you a, a sense of purpose and a feeling that, you know what, like I'm contributing to, to humanity, I'm doing something, and that can bring joy. So even when things are hard, you know, you still have that, you know, things are tough, maybe money's tough right now, 
but I'm 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 a responsible person. I'm doing good things. Hundred percent. And okay, so before we need to get back to the book, but I want to share one more thing. I forget who it was. I was reading somebody or watching something, and they said they were at their happiest when they were not at their poorest, but they were like things were rough, right? And I will tell you in my own life. You know, that moment, I remember I moved down to San Diego and I had no car and I had no furniture. And, you know, it was just me and my wife at that time and our, our child. And we really didn't have anything. But I'm telling you, anytime we were able to achieve that next level, right? Anytime yeah. we were able to work hard and save our money and buy something of value or, or just go out or, or do something. Those were good times. Yeah. Right. The time. And again, <laughs> I'm not saying I would want to turn back the clock and be in that scenario. I'm thankful I went through that scenario and I enjoyed that. But I think there's something to be said about, again, just reiterating what you're saying, that there's purpose and there's value because not everything was excitement. I guess the excitement was achieving something. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think it's kind of funny because he uses a lot of Seneca quotes, which I'll, I'll bring up. Uh, You're going old school with the Seneca here. Yeah, well, I mean, he's got a lot of the quotes yeah, there. I think true, that's true, true. probably my favorite part of of this book. Who Seneca again? So, um, so Seneca is one of the famous Stoics. In fact, he was um, like an emperor. And and during what time and where? You're the history guy. So when was when was, was he Seneca? a Greek philosopher? No, he was Roman. Oh, gosh. oh man! I don't know. Right in the not, middle of book not, study. Not super uh, critical, but um, okay. so yeah, so. Anyways, he's one of the the uh, he was a powerful emperor and he had everything. But as a Stoic, he kind of he didn't utilize all of those things. He was one of the few powerful people who didn't go in abundance of everything. He didn't have abundance of food and things and luxuries and and all of the things that would typically happen with power. Um, and and kind of the Stoic mindset is to be uncomfortable, to live in a lower lower status, and kind of um, you know not look for excitement, but kind of look for the everyday and contentment. Uh, so it's kind of, I don't think Seneca would have ever like approved of a lot of the things in this book, mm -hmm. uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. And you got to remember, and yeah, I was right. It was a, he was a Roman, Roman, yeah. uh, you know, early AD. Uh, but you got to remember that was during a time when, and we don't want to get too historical here, but like Rome was like thriving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like Rome, Rome was like next level mm -hmm. golden age of Rome. You know, they had already conquered all the tribes. They they had established empire. And so, you know, for these truths to be related at this time from a statesman, like, that's a big deal. And that, that's why I think those tr truths stand the test of time till now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that is brought up in this book is uh, kind of this idea of kind of the the old-fashioned type of rich, the old way people used to think about money. And, and he refers to it as like de deferred wealthiness. Um, and then the new rich is the idea that in the past, or, or what a lot of people do is they kind of live to be wealthy later in life and kind of are miserable now. So they're working to store up money for later. So richest man in Babylon. Right. And and I think one of the things that, that and I think there's so many good things that we can take out of this book. In fact, like I had a meeting today where I like utilized some of the stuff from this book Did in the meeting. Really? Yeah. Um, but so there's a lot that can be taken from it. But I think it's interesting that... Um, the richest man in Babylon philosophy, I think, is still true. I think you should 100% be being wise with your money now so that you always have it. Kind of the idea here with this idea of new rich is 
make a bunch of money like in the short term and then blow it in the short term and then make more money in the short term and constantly have this money in taking micro vacations. To and a all certain point, I mean, we'll get into it, but he does talk about maxing out IRAs and 401ks. And I know you, when we talked before the podcast, you said it was for tax purposes. But in the end, if you're maxing those out, you're setting yourself up for the future. Yeah. And I think, I think what makes this book different is if you have enough money that you can max out your IRA and a 401k and be taking every two months, take a whole month off. Um, I think there's few and far between people who actually have that level of income. What makes Richest Man in Babylon so good is anybody, whether you're making $100 a week or $10,000 a week, can put those principles in, in effect. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, uh, but yeah, so I, I think there, to get into some of the, his main ideas, he has this acronym and it's DEAL, D E A L. Uh, and so uh, the D stands for definition and it's kind of, defining what it is you want and, and need in life and what the problems are that you think you're currently facing. E is for elimination, which, uh, and we'll get into each one of these uh, independently. E is for elimination, which is like removing the clutter and excess from your life, getting rid of everything, specifically like hours of work that are like pointless, it's just wasted. Um, a is for automation, uh, which is to get as much of your life automated as possible, including things like virtual assistants. Uh, and then L is for liberation, uh, which we don't really get to in the first part of our um, review, uh, but it's kind of finally having the freedom to, to be able to live the lifestyle that you want to live. Uh, so DEAL is the acronym that we're going to use here, and he gives kind of his story of how he got started. Uh, but uh, all right, so starting with the D definition, do you have anything you want to jump in there? No, it's I, there, there's a few things on here. So when I think of D, right, defining, I think defining words is important, right? So he talks about he he doesn't necessarily give a definition, but he says he talks about on page 22 about, you know, getting off the wrong train, like seeing money different, seeing being rich, being different. Right. And he, he mentions, he says, being financially rich and having the ability to live like a millionaire are fundamentally two very different things. Mm. Right. And I think I think we're both I, I would say we're both on the same page on that one. I don't think there's any disagreement there. I think. You can be rich. And. I wouldn't say live like a millionaire, but you have a lot of the principles or a lot of the attributes of a millionaire, right? You have time freedom, right? You, you're not worried about paying the bills. You, you can, you can spend on nice things. Like you, you can, you can do all those things being a millionaire, or I would say maybe a DECA millionaire allows you to do that to a greater extent. Hmm. Right. But, but one of the things that he kind of argues is it takes, it can take away if you're working 80 hour weeks to be there, you've got no time to enjoy that. Agree. Right. Um, and, and I, I think, think it's so spot on. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's definitely true. And, and he has a point here. Um, one of the Seneca quotes, the very beginning of this section, he says, the Seneca quote is, these individuals have riches just as we say that we have a fever when really the fever has us. And I think that's that's a good idea of like some people search for money and they're so consumed with making money that they they don't even get a chance to enjoy the simple pleasures in life that that money is supposed to buy. So it's like, yeah, they might be able to buy, I don't know, just to be extravagant here, a 80 foot yacht or something like that. But if they never get to go out on it because they're so busy all the time running this big company, it's like, well, I don't have a a, a yacht, but I got a kayak and I get to go out every couple of weeks. You know what I mean? And it's like, I actually I mean, get to enjoy a little more. But it's, it's rich. It's rich for you. And that's one of the things we talk about on the podcast all the time is about, you know, Mike and I, would we love to be ultra wealthy? I don't think we're opposed to that. <laughs> At least I, I'm not. Uh, are we opposed to being millionaires or deca millionaires or even more? No, but ultimately, 
the ROI, the the enjoyment of life is still there, you know, regardless of whether you achieve that. And I I personally do know a lot of people that own, you know, Lamborghinis and Ferraris, but they just sit in garages. Yeah. Right. And it's and it's nice, you know, say, hey, this is my car and they take it on the weekends. But ultimately, they end up more enjoying their time with their family or going out or going on a vacation. So you got to really think about what what do we mean by rich? Yeah. And I think that's why the whole defining thing is kind of really defining what you want out of life. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Heather and I moved into the fifth wheel. We were so far off the grid that we don't have like TV. We don't have Internet. Um, So we have to like if we want to watch something on Netflix, we download it and then go home and watch it later. Right. So but what I've noticed is not having those distractions, not having those things actually allows us to do the things we enjoy a little bit more. Right. Whereas those were distractions before watching TV. Now it's like we go and we sit out on our little front porch, uh, a little fire pit that we have and drink coffee at night and talk for a couple hours. Right. And it's like we have less now, right? Like we've simplified everything. So like just on the, just the look of what we have, we look far less wealthy, but what this says, the ability to choose is real power. And I think living the lifestyle that we're living with now, living in a fifth wheel and kind of downsizing gives us those opportunities, options to say like, Hey, next summer we should go on a one month road trip, right? Like, cause now we have the ability to do that. Whereas And that's because she's going to be quitting work, right? Like if she was still working, we wouldn't be able to go on that trip for a month and we would have a lot more money in our bank account, but we wouldn't be doing the things we wanted to do, right? And so I think Mm -hmm. think that is one of the the elements of this book that we kind of like. So one of the things you should do is try and figure that out for yourself. Like what are the things in your life, if you could define like what you want your life really to look like, what is it? Because maybe it is, and we talk about on the podcast all the time, maybe it is just lots of money in the Lambo and all of that stuff. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's like, you know, what? I want to see every state. I want to watch a baseball game in every, you know, major stadium. Right. Well, maybe that costs less than you think it does. And you don't actually have to work as hard for it if if you're willing to define what it is that you really want. I agree. And that's what I mean. He does say that, though, and to a certain point. I mean, if you go over to the next section, um, page 30, when he talks about don't follow a model that doesn't work. If the recipe sucks, it doesn't matter how good a cook you are. Right. And so ultimately, and we talk about this all the time. I think this was like episode 12 of our podcast. I don't remember what episode. Don't quote me on that. I'm probably way off. But it was find the model that works for you. Right. And we talked about this with Hustle at Home Mom. We talked about this with Craigslist Hunter. We will always be talking about this is that ultimately, one, you got to find the model that works for you. So, you know, there's I've always said this, like I myself struggle let in the in the Amazon FBA game, not that I struggle like I uh, meaning I don't know what I'm doing, but I struggle in the sense that I don't know if I want to scale to a certain point where I have the warehouse and I have the multiple employees and I'm sending stuff to prep centers because to me that I would lose sleep over that. <laughs> I I I am I'm content right now, you know, making my few K a month on Amazon with higher margins without having to scale to that level. So that model works for me. When I've tried to do those other models, the recipe, I I would take it a step further. I don't think the recipe was wrong. I just think I didn't understand the recipe. Hmm. Or maybe the recipe was off. Or it just wasn't on Instagram. Or it just wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't your taste buds, right? Like that's not what you wanted. Um, I think one of the areas that, that we, 
maybe disagree with a little bit here uh, with each other. Yeah. Um, but I think I think we're a little closer than you think on this is the idea of retirement. So one of the things he mentions with kind of the deferred rich is the deferred rich are looking for retirement. And he makes this pretty compelling case that retirement in a lot of ways is similar to life insurance, kind of a worst case scenario that you're saying, I'm saving up so that like the very, very end, I can quit a dead end job that I hate and I've worked so hard for so that now I have money to do things I want to do. But like you're out of your prime, you don't have you know anything left. And I do think that's true. If you're if you're not enjoying now, it's, it's probably a bad idea. But one of the things I think I disagree with that of like retirement is just worst case planning is to be realistic. I don't think I'm going to retire until I have to right now, whatever that age is, I don't know. I'm not one of those people that's like, I'm going to retire as soon as I hit 60 or 65. However, no matter what, even if you think like, I'm just going to keep working and enjoying life and I'm going to keep doing things and I'm going to enjoy my life now, there most likely will come a point in your life if you live long enough where you are physically or mentally unable to work. And I feel like that time is coming. And so if knowing that you're not preparing, even if it's not like, okay, when I'm 80, I'm going to go golfing all the time, but I at least need to have enough money saved that my my life is taken care of. I can be put in a home or my, my kids can take care of me or whatever the situation is where I'm taken care of because that time is coming. And to not prepare for that, I, I feel is not responsible. But I think he says that in there. He says retirement is worst case scenario insurance. So he's saying, yes, do the retirement. It is worst case scenario. It's if you if you're unable to, you know, he says it becoming physically incapable of working and needing a reservoir of capital to survive. Retirement, but then he says retirement as a goal or final redemption is flawed, which I 100 yeah. percent agree. And I wish I had True. agreed to this in my early 20s. Yeah. No, I, I think I think when it's I mean, rereading that that statement makes a little bit more sense when if that's your only goal is like I'm living, I'm working to retire. I, I, that's I think miserable. that's miserable. Like, think terrible. about yeah. that. Like. And I got to say, so when I say like, you got to like, do, like, oh, me, you say like too much. I, I think I do. So I'm trying to cut that down. We actually had a reviewer to point that out, too. And, I, you know, you notice things more. So I appreciate that. I know. That. I know when I first started teaching, one of my master teachers pulled me aside and said, um, you say uh. Uh, uh, a lot. And I was like, oh no. And I said like, what do I do to stop that? Like, I don't know. And she said, honestly, she goes, when you get your own class, find a student you trust and have them mark down every time you say uh in a class and make it a game. And then like each class ask like, how many did I do? I've never done that, but I've thought about doing that. And every time I think about doing that, it does make me go. Ooh. Yeah. No tally marks, please. In the, <laughs> on the, in the comments. Yeah. So uh, had I understood this though in my twenties, right? In my twenties, it was very, and I would, Say in my 20s, I didn't think about a lot of stuff. I just thought about, you know, finding my career, building that career, you know, being married, having kids, you know, having the home, all that good stuff. At the same time, though, you know, when you get to your 30s, you start thinking about that a little more. At least that's my experience. But here's the case. Like, I, I believe right now I'm not living my best life, but I'm living a good life. I'm not. I'm not stressed about, you know, okay, when am I going to see these people again? I haven't seen them. Like I, I've talked about this on the podcast. I have gone on more trips in the last year of me being full time than I went in my 15 years of having what would you consider a career. And I've reconnected with people that I have not seen in 20 years. Had I not made that choice to step away, and I'm not saying break the nine to five. I'm not saying. Get away, get away from it. 
But if it's something you have the option to do or it's something you want to do, to me, I think it's an incredible goal. Because what it does, it allows you, instead of deferring until, hey, when I'm 60, I'm going to go visit so-and-so or I'm going to approach this individual. I'm going to go travel here. Like, to me, it's now. Now, I mean, now that I'm like, I'm still able to walk and and <laughs> hike to the best of my ability in my current shape or whatever it is, I want to do that now. Yeah. I don't want to wait till I'm retired. Yeah, that's good. And I think too, and this is maybe a little different than what he's saying. It does seem like experiences are a lot bigger for him in this book than than items are and things because he makes a couple comments about like, you know old, miserable guys that are driving Corvettes or whatever, right? The red BMW. Yeah, guy. the red BMW. So he makes comments about that, which which kind of tells me that like it's not things that buy happiness. It's He focuses a lot on experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I read somewhere, I'm a, I'm a gadget guy. Like I love new technology. I like new, you know, cameras and lenses. And, and it's if, if you were to give me $1,000 and say you can do whatever you want with it, my first instinct is what new toy can I buy, right? Mm-hmm. But I read somewhere that said, Studies show that people are far more happy after when they purchase an experience as opposed to an item. So if you spend that $1,000 to go on a trip, that even though, because to me, it's like, if my wife says, oh, we can go on this trip. And I'm like, but that $1,000, I could buy that in camera. You know, like I think about that. But then 10 years down the road, I still have the memories of that trip. I still have the excitement from it. It's it's done something for me that that camera equipment isn't going to be, you know, even any good anymore. Right. So it's like, I think there's something to be said about like, if you've got, even if you don't have the time, kind of one of the things this book is saying is make the time, find ways to cut things out of your life. Even if that's work and parts of work and other things in order to experience things that are going to enrich your life. So I I definitely think there's some, some pretty powerful things there. Um, what about this quote? So it says, and I think this is something you've talked about before. I just want to get what you think about the it says, it is far more lucrative and fun to leverage your strengths instead of attempting to fix all the chinks in your armor. Um, so what are your thoughts on on leveraging strengths as opposed to trying to improve weaknesses? I'm 100% about it. I, I think, and I, and I experienced this both as a teacher and as an administrator who was, you know, helping teachers develop professionally is that we're always going to have weaknesses. And as we get older and as we develop, whether it's in the reselling world with eBay and Amazon or, you know, Posh or Mercari, whatever platform you use, or whether it's your current career. And again, we're not career coaches or anything, but in my experience, what I've noticed is that the weaknesses are always there and the weaknesses. Yeah. Some of them you can eliminate and some of them you can improve, but some of them are, it's more of who you are. Like it doesn't meld with you. Mm. Right. So if you play, play to your strengths, You'll have greater success and those uh, playing to those strengths, unless it's some blaring, blaring, you know, thing that you do wrong, those strengths are going to overcome those weaknesses and those weaknesses, you know, just won't be a thing anymore. And I I think, I I don't know, I I would say growing up in the culture of the 80s and 90s for me, and I feel really old saying that. It, it was very much still like, you know, fixing all your flaws, right? Where now it's very much like, hey, we're all flawed. I mean, that's the sense I get right now. And it's better to play. Your, I 100% agree. And I think that applies to reselling. And we've talked about it in our podcast. You know, I've gone full circle about, hey, this is 
I actually thought Amazon was going to take me to the next level and I was going to be a lot happier. But I found that eBay and, and the old school stuff I was doing, not old school, but the original stuff, the garage sales, the big bulk buys and all that. In the end, those were my strengths. Yeah. And so that's what you got to play because the other stuff I could sp- waste a whole lot of time and money and it's not worth it to me. Yeah. Oh, I think that's good. I think, I think there's definitely something to be said for focusing on your strengths. Um, I do think you have to be realistic on what your weaknesses are and recognize that some of them you just avoid completely and others. I do think though, there is a place to say if in reselling like pictures or like listing or sourcing, I just, I can't, I don't like doing it. There, there comes a place where it's like, okay, if one of your, if your weakest link in, in the chain is holding you back, maybe you do need to put a little effort there. Unless part of what the book talks about is kind of, you know, outsourcing. Maybe you can find if, somebody else to do that or for Or to you. add to that, if your weakest link is what's burdening you and causing you to doubt what you're doing, offload it and have somebody else take care of it. And even if it's poor, it's not you and you're not thinking about it anymore. Yeah. That's I'll true. talk about that, but that's one of the things about, you know, people have asked us before, hey, can you talk about getting a helper? And speaking of which, can I pause yeah. for a second? Why do we, why do you call him helper? Like you, you call your, like I, I, every time I listen to the podcast and I hear you say that, I kind of get like, you know, like Santa's helper. Like why not just employee or sure. assistant? I will tell you, it's just, I'm going with the trend. I have not heard many resellers call them employees. Now, could it be a tax reason? Don't know. Could it be? Because helper just seems maybe, w- strange to me. Like well, my helper. It, it it is. It is the language of the day. Is it? Th- that's why I use the term helper. Okay. Maybe maybe we can call them because we're going to talk about virtual assistants. So maybe we call I mean, them an a physical assistant. Mine's an, an independent contract though, so they're not. They are an employee, but they're not. Yeah. So I mean, I just can't imagine any other place where you'd be like my helper. No, I, you know? no, no I, I agree. Listen, I don't know. It is what it is. Okay, let's move go. on. All right. So I want to talk about something real quick. Uh, and we talked about this earlier. He talks about um, page 34 about lifestyle design is thus not interested in creating an excess of idle time, which is poisonous. I think that's so, I think that's such a huge statement that we're not working to create dead time. Dead time is, I'll keep saying it over and over again. Like if you're striving to be the guy from office. Now, remember the guy from office space. Ultimately, if you don't know, office space is a movie from the 90s about a guy that works in a cubicle and he hates his job and his bosses and he wishes he could do nothing. Spoiler alert here, by the way. In the end, he still ends up working. But he's working construction and he's outdoors. And to him... Enjoys that, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it he was content. It was satisfying. So it's the same thing here is that he wasn't the guy in office space wasn't looking for dead time or idle time. He was looking for time that he could be content in using for whatever he decided to do with it. Right? But but realistically, a lot of people do. They do want idle time. Um, because they think that's going to bring them happiness. And I, there's a quote that I love that basically says, um, if you want to meet the devil, have blank space on your calendar. And I think that's, I think that's like a great, a truth, like all of the, the problems in your life, all of the things that like, like, I just think about myself, right? Like the simple things like diet and exercise, right? If, if I'm doing those things consistently, man, I feel good. Things are going good. I'm working better. Now, if I take a couple of weeks off or a day off, cause like, oh, I need a break. 
well then well, I'm taking a break until I eat an extra cookie and then and then I do this and then all of these things that I don't want in my life start compiling and then I feel bad about myself and so then I I'm going to take a veg day and lay on the couch because I kind of feel bad about myself and then while I'm vegging on the couch I eat more cookies you know so it's like when you have that blank space and you're not progressing towards something I think it's so easy that idle time just it ultimately leads you to be miserable and you fix that miserable feeling by seeking more idleness which just makes you more miserable it's that cycle so yeah it's it's that's 100% agree. Not good. Um, what did you think about when it starts talking about the idea of the new rich um, and the idea of relative income versus like actual income? So um, specifically absolute income versus relative income. And he's kind of talking about, um, you know, if you can work fewer hours, let's say 10 hours and make the same amount as somebody who makes works for 40 hours, but maybe you don't get to work as often, right? So you're what you make in a month or in a week or whatever, but like you, you're not looking at like, what's my yearly salary? How much am I bringing in a year? But like, how much do I make an hour that I can then use to not be idle, but have free time? I'm all about it in the sense that, and, and maybe I'm throwing you off because I think we both were in agreement about something before the podcast and now I'm throwing it off a little bit, but I I very much do not understand, and I guess this is now because I'm full time as a reseller. I do not understand why nine to five, like or why why eighty hours, right? Why? Because I'll tell you in reselling, like you know, I get it. Like sometimes people say, you know, fifteen to twenty five items, you got to list every day, or or you you know, I spend four hours sourcing and I spend four hours listing, or like there there's these like time things that are established. And then I I hear other people that are like. Yeah, when I get to it, right? Or they've built up enough inventory and they take care of it when they can. And maybe I'm not answering your question. Maybe I'm way off. But I, I really question why, and I, I agree with Tim Ferriss on this, to me, very whole, wholeheartedly. Who set those hours? Why are those hours set? Yeah, I mean... It, it- Nine to five is kind of actually old school because realistically, very few people actually have that in the working force. You know what I mean? Like some professions have it, but that a normal person working just like a not not a profession, but a job, their hours are all over the place, right? Like weekends. We, so I think the nine to five, just that concept, though, I mean, compared to where we came from of you basically had to work forced hours that were like intense. And then like now they put restrictions like there's an understandable now i think what you're saying though is and one of the problems is that a lot of businesses pay an employee for eight hours of work but they really don't have eight hours of work to do okay they really don't have or they make it eight hours like that employee makes it eight hours because they have to find their value to continue getting paid yeah and i think that's true for a lot of things now the problem though is how do you tell that to somebody who's a cash reg- uh, a cashier right working a cash register somebody has to be in front of that cash register for as long as that store is open. Right. And so, yeah, some jobs like, you know, and same thing with teaching, right? Like when I'm teaching in front of a class, I've got hours where it's, it's there's students in front of me and I've got time that I've got to prep for that class. And then I've got a grade after that class. So I don't have a lot of dead time, but I do know a lot of people who have like office jobs where a good portion of the day is like social media and stuff. Cause there's really not that much work. So it would be more beneficial for the company to say, um, here's the tasks you have to complete. And when you're done, go home. Right. Um, 
that might be more beneficial, but there's just that idea of like, can you trust people to do that? If you were hiring somebody, I mean, one of my best times and I, you know, I'm not employed by target anymore, but I was employed by target. I've shared that before. Me Actually, too. We had, oh, you do that. Yeah. I did have some, uh, assets protection, which was their loss prevention of their undercovers at work. Uh, to catch shoplifters, uh, actually reach out to us on the DMs. It was kind of funny sharing stories. But, you know, one of the times I was happiest in working that job and working anywhere was at Target because at Target and, you know, if you're listening, I'm not going to reveal names of the managers, but our managers very much like as long as there is no major theft and as long as you have high dollar arrests consistently, do what you want. So there'd be days we'd have like, you know, a $5,000 uh, apprehension. We'd have a $8,000 apprehension and we were golden. I mean, we would go to lunch for three hours. Yeah. But and- see, if you're the, if you're the employer, that that's the kind of job where you do need somebody watching the whole time. But, but yes, but that's what cameras are there for. But, but here's what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong. I'm sorry. But I was motivated to work every day. Like there was never, I mean, there are a few days where like, eh, I got to get up. I got to go. But, you know, as long as we got stuff done, I felt that we were not wasting our time. Like we, we, and, and I was, I was genuinely happy. Like I enjoyed what I did and we got stuff done. And I think we were more efficient in doing things because, you know, we're on top of all of our cases, you know, internally we were catching up on. I mean, we were one of the top producing, I think teams in California. And we, I, I would say I only worked maybe I say that now three hours a day. I don't think I worked more. Maybe if I had a case that would take six hours, maybe if something went crazy went down, maybe it took 12 hours, but for the most part we got stuff done and it was motivating. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, I think that's, that's true to an extent. And I think there, there's definitely jobs where the job done and a lot of companies are starting to realize that, right? Like, it's kind of a looser work environment, but it's like, we're trusting you to get X, Y, and Z done efficiently, correctly, however you do it, right? Like you don't have to be in here. You can work from home a couple of days a week, right? And I think places are starting to realize that they get a lot of success from their employees. They get a lot more employee buy-in um, and less wasted time. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I think there's jobs like just think about it. Like it, you asked nine to five, like part of that comes from the, the factory days. And there's still a lot of people who are working factories or oil rigs or, or conducting on a train. And it's like, there needs to be somebody in front of this panel for the length of the shift. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't think it's a one size fits all. Yeah, exactly. I no, agree. absolutely. Um, all right. So then we get into, uh, kind of the idea of, um, okay. So, so what do we do now? How do we, how do we figure out when things look really bad, right? And that's part of it is like, there's there's a lot of stress and a lot of fear of like, okay, but if I do this, if I try and live the life I want to live, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Things in my life are going to fall apart. And one of the things he talks about is he says, risks weren't that scary once you took them. I think that's true. I think a lot of the time we have fear, we're afraid bad things are going to happen and we never make decisions. We never actually act. When in reality, it's not really as bad as you think it's going to be. No, I I think that's we were just talking about that today. When I came in, I, I was telling Mike, I said, Mike, it's weird. I should be scared out of my mind right now. Like, you know, what if eBay sales die and Am- I get suspended on Amazon? I'm done. But I don't have that fear. 
And I, I think part of it is what he talks about on, you know, pages 40 to whatever, 40, 43, 44. You know, he, he runs, his, he goes through these scenarios. He goes, I go here and then my business died here and then this happened and this bad thing happened. And I think our minds are very much built to go in worst, at least mine is, mm. to go worst case scenario all the time. And, you know, part of going full time, I did think worst case scenario. That's why I built up my savings. That's why, you know, I had, I made sure I had enough inventory. That's why I made sure I had medical insurance figured out and all this other stuff. But at the same time, you can't let risks hold you back. But it has to be healthy. Yeah. And it's not even so much risk as the fear. Because it's not even... Yeah, I agree. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's the fear of what's going to happen that holds a lot of people back. And one of the things, one of the Seneca quotes that he gives is maybe recognizing that like the worst case scenario isn't really that bad. So the Seneca quote is, set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantest and cheapest fare. Uh, uh, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, is this the condition that I feared? Mm -hmm. And the idea is live it for a little bit. Like, like, okay, what would life be like if I, you know, didn't have this? Well, spend a couple of days without it and see like, maybe it's not so bad, right? Like if you live the worst case scenario, actually physically live it, you know, and you can't always live every worst case scenario. But if you make yourself uncomfortable intentionally, you might realize, hey, I'm stronger than I think I am. And if everything fell apart, which chances of everything in your life falling apart, is probably pretty low, right? Like things break here and there. Maybe. No, no. I mean, things break like part of your life might break. But a lot of times when you say your mind goes worst case scenario, you're not just thinking like, what if the business fails? But what if the business fails and my house catches fire? And this and right, like usually and the tornado hits, right? And then so it's like an earthquake, yeah. So, so usually it's like none of those things are all going to happen at once, it's like one or two. And once you like realize, like, you know what, okay, I can handle when things are bad, and then now what are the steps of, of getting out of that? Uh, and I think that was pretty powerful. He kind of walked through, um, like the steps of define uh, your nightmare, the worst that can happen, what could you do to then improve those, right? And then, um, what are what are the pros and cons of like both scenarios? Like if, if the best case scenario or the worst case scenario happens, like, you know, if you take that trip to Fiji and you take a week off of work, my eBay store is gonna gonna collapse and I'm gonna get suspended and my I'm gonna come home, my house is gonna be broken into and, and you try to sell shirts on eBay, you <laughs> might get suspended and we'll share that on next podcast. Yeah. So you, you think all those things, but it's like, okay, what if I go to Fiji for a week and my eBay store does get shut down. Well, I come home and I spend a couple of days and I get it all worked out and figured out. And mm -hmm. well, what if what if my house does get broken into? Man, well, what would I lose? I'd lose a few things. I'd have to, I'd have to buy. I a will new tell computer. you though, that defines entrepreneurship to a certain point. I think the the biggest fear about going full time because I've I've heard all kinds. I've heard I've heard Gary Vee at one time say, "If you have a real job, you're not an entrepreneur." And I'm like, whoa, like that's that's a that's pretty, but you know that's pretty polarizing, right? You have to choose sides on that one. I've heard others say, if you have savings and you're, you go full time, you're not an entrepreneur. I've had another perspective of, you know, the richest man in Babylon perspective, like don't invest in anything unless you fully vetted everything and, and you know what it's going to take. Ultimately though, and I speak this as only being full time for over a year, is that it's huge to be able to understand that whatever worst case scenario is in your mind, that is far from where you're at. 100%. 
uh, for the most part, unless you, I, I think there's self-fulfilling prophecy if you do go down that road, right? Because you begin to go, you know what, this is exactly how things were, were playing out in my mind. And so this is going to happen, this is happening. You put yourself in a bad place. But if you put it in your place and like he, he did here, he backpedaled and he began to go, okay, I'm going to define this fear and give it an element of like, okay, this is not based in reality. You're able to function a lot better as an entrepreneur. We wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and there's a good Mark Twain quote here. It says, I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that agreed? It's so true. Like, and he talks a little bit about stress and you stress, which are distress and you stress, which is um, distress is the bad type of stress, right? It's like your body's in a fight or flight mode. Whereas you stress is like the good kind. Like if you're, if you enjoy bungee jumping or you enjoy jumping out of airplanes, there's still an adrenaline rush. Your body is going through a type of stress, but it's not a damaging, bad type, unhealthy stress. Now, what makes humans different than like other animals is, and I remember reading this and I kind of seeing like how hormones work and all of that. If, if a, a deer is walking along and they smell a, a wolf or something, right? Immediately they go into fight or flight. They take off running. They're panicking. As soon as they're safe, they're no longer in danger. Boom. They're back to eating food. They're like instantly heart rate goes back down to normal. They no longer think about that wolf. Whereas like us, like if I almost get into a car accident, right? Like I slam on my brakes. I almost hit somebody or somebody almost hits me panicking. Then the rest of the day you're thinking about it, man, if I'd have gotten that accident and, mm-hmm. and, and you think about it and it weighs on you over and over and over. And so part of this is just kind of defining it. And, and once you define it, it kind of takes away some of the stress, the distress that you experience, especially when it isn't actually going to happen, right? Like you can run through all those scenarios in your head um, and it's probably not going to actually be very helpful for you. Um, all right. I want to throw a question here because I, I really struggled with this. Uh, we're going to jump all the way to page 50 where you're at. This quote irked me. I just, I, I didn't, I give me context here because maybe I'm off, but he states, Four paragraphs in unreasonable and unrealistic goals are easier to achieve for yet another reason. And then he goes into his reasons. Yeah. Do you believe did, did that resonate with you? Did you or you're like, yes, you know what? As long as I achieve for things that can't happen, they're going to happen. Yeah. Or I th- that seem really unreasonable. I, I think there's a lot of that 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 doesn't work. And so kind of what he's talking about here is and he makes this claim that was pretty interesting is, you know, it's lonely at the top. Right. Like people at the top are often kind of they seem to be out of your league. Right. Like and he uses example of like, you know, picking up a girl at a bar. Right. And he's like, it's people are afraid to talk to that really beautiful girl at the bar because it's like, oh, she might be out of my league. She might turn me down. But recognizing that if a lot of the guys are thinking that then nobody's talking to her. Right. And he says he makes this quote here where it's it's easier and, and it's kind of messed up that he talks about it. But, but he says it's easier to pick up the one perfect 10 in the bar than five eights. And kind of the idea that he's trying to say is like, sometimes if nobody's chasing the biggest dream, nobody's chasing the big goal, then you've got no competition there. Like that might be the one you can get at. If everybody's chasing mediocrity, then it's good. You're, you're battling, you're elbowing people to like be middle of the road. And so I think there is some truth to be. There's a go between. I mean, sometimes there's room at the top. Well, and that's the right. point is there's room that like. There, that's the point he's trying to make is there's so few people who are actually striving for the top top. So many people have settled for the middle 
that there's actually more vicious competition in the middle than at the top, right? If you were to say like, you know what, instead of just like settling for like, I'm, I'm the, the middle manager at this company, or I, I want, like, that's the job you're fighting for. If you're like, you know what, uh, I'm going to try and be an executive of this company and I'm going to send an email every so often to the CEO and ask them like, Hey, like, I love what you're doing. Will you go out for coffee with me? I'd love to like talk to you about the business. Next thing you know, you're, you're the only employee talking to the CEO and doors start opening for you because everybody else is like chasing that middle of the road. And I think, you know, I think there's some truth to be said there. I don't know how that would necessarily apply to reselling, but maybe it does. Maybe, maybe everybody's so afraid and, and trying so hard to get ungated on like the hard things. Maybe it just, it's a couple of emails and phone calls. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to actually call Nerf and I'm going to, I'm going to try and talk to somebody there, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell my story and I'd like to be, a, I'd like to sell and how much money would I need to make a big bulk purchase? And what do I, and if everybody else is like too afraid to do that and you're the only one asking, Hey, maybe those doors open for you. No, I agree. I mean, okay. See, now I'm like, I'm in the end going against what I just said, but I will tell you a lot of the doors that have opened for me in my life has me and, and Mike and I go back and forth because, you know, you would say out of the two of us, you're more reserved than I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm willing to ask the awkward question. I'm willing to go to that celebrity or that important person and that, or that CEO. And what one may seem annoying, I see as an opportunity. And I will tell you, and we'll talk about this. Actually, we did talk about this in our previous podcast uh, when we had shared about networking, is that in networking, the worst that you can have happen to you is that somebody will say no, and they'll never speak to you again, which chances of them saying no could be very high. Chances of them speaking to you again depends on who that person is. But it's like anything in life. Like... You got to live life with no regrets. You got to be willing to, you know, I I'm at the stage now where I will pursue whatever I think I need to pursue until the door is completely shut. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I think, I think it's, there's a balance, right? Like some people can go too far on that, that mindset and maybe, but here's the thing. So like my natural inclination is to not take the big, huge risk because if that door closes, it could close permanently. Okay. Right. All right. I see what you're saying. But the truth is, if I never make the move, I was never going to get through that door anyways. Right. So even if it does close permanently, Mm -hmm. I'm not not in any different place than I would have been before. Right. So I definitely think there's a lot to be said there. Um, And he goes in to explain, like, he created this challenge for a bunch of students. And he said, like, all you have to do is, like, try and reach out to three really important people and ask them an interesting question, send it to me. And whoever has the most interesting question, the most interesting person, I'm going to pay for a trip. And of all of the students, none of them did it, right? And all only only one would have had to have done it. They could have reached out to anybody and they would have won, right? And it's just that fear of, of stepping out. So one of the things he kind of encourages you to do is, you know, step out and do something. Um, all right. Okay, so it gets interesting after this because it, get, it gets to very, philo- we're very, very philosophical right now, right? And then it gets more to the tangible, tangible and the practical. But I mean, there's some things in here I, I still, you know, I kind of struggle. I, I, I disagreed with the budgeting. What do you think about his budgeting? It, what do you mean? You mean okay, you so, just like blow all your money? No. Well, part of it was like he was looking at total monthly income. So one of the concepts with the, the relative wealth is how much. So if you want to drive whatever car, how much is it going to cost you for the the Lamborghini? Well, if it's $2,000 a month, well, I need to make $2,000 a month. And then if you want 
this trip, how much is it going to cost you? Well, that's all you need to make. And it's like, I feel like it didn't take into account like all of the normal expenses people have, right? Like the idea that you can just like go to a, a foreign country and he makes a good point. Like you can go to another country and oftentimes your money is now worth three to five times, 10 times what it was worth, right? Mm -hmm. So you can go on a, on a trip and do all these amazing things across the world and actually spend less in the month doing that than it would have cost for rent, you know, here in the States. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, most people don't have a situation where they can not pay rent and go do that. You're still paying rent for that month. You're not mm -hmm. just gone or you don't own anything and you can't just like get on a month to month rent and put all your stuff in storage. There's a lot of expenses that I feel like is kind of overlooked here with the budgeting system where it's kind of just like how much you need to make to do those things. Well, make sure you just make that much per month and that's all you need. And it's like, it doesn't. Yeah, but it's not only that. I And again, we could be wrong. Hey, by the way, if we are, let us know in the comments below. I'll take this chance right now. Uh, if you haven't had a chance and you're listening to the podcast and you haven't, you know, seen our lovely bearded faces, uh, we are on YouTube. It'd be awesome if you could subscribe and hit that bell button in case, you know, and we do plan on dropping some videos here in the near future. Uh, also, we're on Instagram. We're constantly dropping information, you know, whether it's a bolo, whether it's, uh, you know, a tip for reselling, whether it's current news, topics related to reselling, just any, you know, the struggles of our day in the life of reselling. Follow us on Instagram. We are Pure Hustle Podcast. We are Pure Hustle Podcast on Facebook. We are Pure Hustle Cast on Twitter. You can also give us a call if you have any questions or suggestions. Number is 619-738-1170. That's 619-738-1170. Also shoot us an email. Thank you all of you that do shoot us emails. We do read them. Sometimes it takes a little to get back to you, but we will get back to you. We are Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And a couple two, a couple other things, two ways you can help us. Uh, one is we do have that pay PayPal link in the bottom. And if you ever want to help us, you know, in a monetary way, uh, it's always greatly appreciated. Uh, we are looking at upgrading some of our systems here uh, in time. So that always helps. And uh, hey, we also have those shirts. That, we still have a few left. So check out our link in our bio if you want to appear as a podcast shirt. And last of all, to us, which we think is the greatest help, is if you could share our YouTube, share our podcast. If you're on iTunes, write a review. Those are always helpful. Puts us higher in the search. Allows other people to get this information. Because ultimately, we've always said everything that we share is 100% free because we want to make an impact and help others. Absolutely. Thank you for that mid-roll. I appreciated that. Well, I, I thought it'd be a perfect time. All right. So going back to what we were talking about. So we were talking about budgets. And you were talking about the fact that it doesn't you know, take into account all the different things. The other thing I wanted to talk about was not only does it take into doesn't take into account other items, it doesn't take into account whether it's I feel like not, I don't want to say this word, but it's the best word that fits here, whether it's prudent to do certain things. Yeah, I mean, I. I think you kind of talked about that all that earlier. Like if it's like your dream goal is to go on this trip and but have maybe a certain your car. dream is off. Yeah, but okay. But that's that. I mean, that's I mean, true. But that, I mean, the idea is if you've gone through this book and you've done the definition part, now you're moving towards what you okay, want. Okay. All right. right. So, I see what you're saying. So at, at that point, like, I mean, we could sit here and say like, how do you really figure out what's the right thing? But that's, that's kind of not what the book is about. Okay. I get it. I get so, it. But you know, I mean, so prudent or not, like, I just think that like, the dreamline math that he gave was like, 
for an Astro Martin, it's $2,000 a month. Personal assistant is $400 a month. Croatian trip is $934 total. So you really only need, and it's like X amount per month. Think about how much good. money that is, though. Like, that's, that is, there's so much more that could be done with that money. Yeah, but if, if you have, I mean, I'm not going to say what people, and I don't think that's how people should spend their money, like $2,000 on a car, but each month. But the, the thing that this kind of takes away is it kind of doesn't have this, because it's relative income, he's not really looking at like, can you afford this long-term? Can you afford this car five years from now, right? It's like, can you make this much money this month? The car's yours, right? Like you've, you've got the money, right? So, but the reality is, I think there's a lot more that needs to go involved with budgeting. I think budgeting is really, really important. Um, now we get into the elimination, which I think was probably one of the better parts of this book so far. Um, kind of talking about how to, to get rid of the stuff that's not important. And it really starts off with a great quote um, one of his quotes, not, not an extra one, but it says this being busy is most often used as a guise for avo avoiding a few critically important, but uncomfortable actions. And gosh, that is so true. Like I'm legitimately busy a lot of times, but there's a lot of times where there's that frog that I don't want to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I make up busyness, right? Like when it came to grading essays, I would much rather do anything else for the most part then grade another essay. It's like, I've got to grade five more essays tonight before I go to bed. Oh man, those dishes need to get done. I better do the dishes. And oh man, my wife wanted me to fix that thing in the car and I better go out and do that. Like, and it's so easy to let all these other things that you're so busy with because you're trying to avoid the actual important thing. When you can eliminate some of that other stuff and really get to what is the thing I should be doing now? Well, it's not only that. I I also believe that busyness. I'm just adding to this book is kind of a form of hiding insecurity, in the sense that to be busy for busy busy sake, like in the sense that you know, in reselling, right? You always want to feel like at least I get a sense of like if I'm not busy, mm -hmm. like I feel like I'm not making money or I should be doing something. But the reality is. That's just my insecurity. Like I've done what I need to do. It's all set. Sales should come in. I should be yeah. good. And I mean, you could always do more, but I definitely see what you're saying. You can work like, 24 hours a day. Yeah, you could. You could keep working for sure. But I think I think you're right when you say like, you almost want to justify to other people like, look, I'm doing something, right? And, mm -hmm. and we actually met somebody at eBay Open, one of our listeners, and she said something I thought was pretty interesting. She said she just started, or not just started, but she'd been reselling for a little bit. She just went full time. She hadn't been really selling for a long time either. And it was, seemed like kind of a sudden thing. And her husband was kind of like, whoa, like you're doing this? Like you're staying home, you're, you're going full time. And he, he made a comment to her one morning, like, are you going to get out of bed today? And she said, as soon as I stop making money, right? And I thought mm -hmm. that was pretty powerful. Like she knew, she understood that she was making money, that she had, you know, upfront done the work, listed items and money's coming in. You know, she wants to take the day to lay in bed. She can do that. But that's why I... I agree with Tim Ferriss here when he's, you know, he calls this chapter the end of time management. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. Now he means more than just that, but I think that is the truth. I definitely want to walk away with because, you know, you go to page 75 and he makes another comment, which I think is very um, part of, you know, the reselling community being overwhelmed is often as unproductive as doing nothing. I love how we have always have like the same, not always, but we have a lot <laughs> of the same. Close. Yeah. Uh, our minds think alike. Yeah, that's so true. Like I'm that way too. Like I can get so overwhelmed and I try not to like, 
I've told people before I want to be the hardest working person in a room, which I think there's something good to be said about that. But at the same time, like, but do you, do you really want to be the hardest working person in the room? Like, is it for like, you feel that if you are the hardest working person, you're doing better than everybody else. Yeah. I, I, I think, I don't think it's necessarily just like a pride thing. Um, but I do think there's like, I want to know that like, I get what that means. I'm just asking the question. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. I, I think there's, I think there's different reasons for that. Um, and I know that I'm often not, but I just want to know, like for myself, like I've worked and I know I'm Mm -hmm. not really comparing myself to other people, but just that, that I've, I've done the best that I can do. Right. Like that's kind of the, the mindset there. Um, but sometimes that comes with like, I'm overwhelmed and sometimes I legitimately get overwhelmed or it's like, I have so many, so many tasks on me that almost nothing gets done. Right. Like it's because I, it, it's just almost like this oppressive weight and then it becomes an excuse for being lazy. Like I'm so overwhelmed. I can't, I'm, I tell my wife, like, we're just gonna have to eat out tonight and I just need to just, I just have to sit here. I can't do anything. Like I'm just so overwhelmed. I have to like think of it. And then, yeah, it can lead to, it can lead to inaction as opposed to actual action. And I think Ferris is setting up the next chapter with that because, you know, he goes on in the the next part of that paragraph, you know, he says, being selective, doing less is the path of the productive focus on the important few and ignore the rest. Yeah. And and I agree. And we'll get that. We'll break down into the nuts and bolts of what he means by that. But it's the same thing in our, in our reselling businesses. Like we can be overwhelmed. Again, I talk about sourcing, you know, don't source projects. Right. Cause you may feel you're being productive, but for every minute that goes by, you may be losing money by not listing an item or not sourcing better items. Mm. Right. I mean, how many sacks of VCR did you sell them all? I've sold a lot of VCRs, but I okay. still have some that need to be. Yeah. I, actually, we can see them. <laughs> yeah. But I do too. I have a lot of projects that I felt overwhelmed and I was never productive about it. And it probably may have been better for me to pass on things. Yeah, no, that's true. I think that's good. And and one of the things he brings up, and this is something I heard years ago, and you know what? I'm almost wondering if I first heard it like on an interview that Tim Ferriss did or something, but maybe not. But the 80-20 rule. And I, I think it's such a yeah. good, it's a, such a good concept, which is, it's basically this, and it, it goes for both the positives and the negatives. And it's 80% of the benefits that you get in any given thing come from 20% of the, so 80% of the output comes from 20% of the input. So if it's if it's money, right? Like 80% of your money is probably coming from 20% of the types of items or the things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's bad customers, right? Or if it's if it's negative people in your life, probably 80% of the problem in your life is only coming from 20% of the people, right? So the idea is if you can identify what the 80/20 is in both the positive and negative, you get to focus on that 20. Whether it's really like, you know what, I'm going to stop doing the 80% that's not bringing me, it's only bringing me the other 20% of benefit. I'm going to get rid of that. And I'm going to focus on this 20% that's bringing me 80% and try and increase that. Or if it's cutting out, like 20% of the things that I'm doing is causing me 80% of the problems. I'm cutting that out. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you can identify that, if you can say 80% of the benefit is coming from 20% of the things you're doing, do more of those things and less of the other 80%. And that's huge. I mean, that, that literally Cuts your time down by 80%, right? Yeah, it's a big deal if you're able to. I mean, there's a lot that goes into trying to cut that down. Yeah, I think so. But but to an extent, like some of it's easier, right? Like if it's if it's stress in your life and you can't get rid of all stress, right? Like if, if you're stressed by your in-laws, you usually can't just be like, 
you're out of my life, right? But at the same time, if you've got friends that are always, you know, their negativity is bringing you down, well, separate yourself from them, right? Mm -hmm. Or if it's, if, if 80% of the returns and the problems that you're having and you're spending your time on is from, I don't know, whether it's Amazon, something like electronics you're doing on Amazon, well, maybe get out of Amazon electronics, right? Because if 80% of your time is being spent fixing problems coming from that and you're only getting 20% of your, your income from it, cut that right like you're spending way too much time on it so i do think there are a lot of times you can identify what's the 80 20 uh, and then make that work for you so i think we should land on to me probably one of the most important concepts in the book and i, I maybe you and i agree or maybe i'm jumping the gun here but i want to talk about parkinson's law uh yeah i thought it was great all right so parkinson's law i'll just read it dictates that a task will swell in and parentheses says perceived importance and complexity in relation to the time allotted for its completion. It is the magic of the imminent deadline. If I give you 24 hours to complete a project, the time pressure forces you to focus on execution. You have no choice but to do only the bare essentials. If I give you a week to complete the same task, it's six days of making a mountain out of molehill. If I give you two months, God forbid, it becomes a mental monster. Yep. The end product of the shorter deadline is almost inevitably of equal or higher quality due to greater focus. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's so good. I think there are definitely, there are definitely times when being on a short time frame does increase the temporary amount of stress, right? Like I think of nights where I stayed up all night, like working on a project because it's due the next day, but that project gets done. And then the next day I sleep just fine. I have, I have a perfect example for this. So when I was a history teacher, I used to assign papers. I used to give students a month I thought I was being the cool teacher, like, you know, parents love me for it. And, and, you know, people had all, you know, all this time, to, students had all this time to get it done. And, and I, it didn't matter. I had nope. students that would still wait the night before. Like it, it did not matter. But, and, but the problem is not only do they wait to the night before, which they would have had to have done anyways, but that entire time they were stressing about it. hundred percent. Right? They were yeah. stressing about it. It was terrible and miserable. So then I went to a two week deadline. And in that two weeks, we got everything done and the quality of papers I received. And I had less students turn in stuff late. Uh, and on top of that, people were glad that I did not give them an entire month, like you said, to stress about it. And I think that's with to me. I mean, I could tell you stories upon stories about, about that because I, I did. I got a lot of flack from admin that were saying this when I was a teacher saying, Orlando, you need to give more time. I'm like, why? I could give them one day or 30 days. They're going to get it done in that same amount of time. Right. And if I'm maybe I'll remove some things and make it shorter, but I'd rather have a quality product in a shorter amount of time than a lousy product in a large amount of time. Yep. And, you know, even in the reselling thing, you know, if my VCRs, right? Like I, I yeah. feel like that was my VCRs. Like I kept saying, like, when I get a free weekend, I'm going to, I'm going to list a bunch of VCRs or, or maybe I'll do like one VCR a week or like, Maybe, maybe I'll do like oh, a VCR. Wow. Maybe I'll do, I'll list one VCR a day for like two weeks and I'll have them all listed or maybe, and the, I stress about it and then I keep putting it off, keep putting it off. But if, if somebody were to come to me and say a boss and say like these VCRs that you have on this shelf, you're listing them by the end of tonight. Like every yeah. single one of them's listed. They're done. I've got it listed. And now I don't have to think about them anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And so instead of thinking about them and stressing about them for a long period of time, you just get it done. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about having enough time for certain things, but 
man, like this move. And I, I mentioned on, on the last podcast, the big move that I did, I've never, I, I want to say I've never worked so hard in my life with so many projects, figuring out solar, trying to move this stuff, going to eBay open, trying to do video stuff, like all of these things at once. But because it was all in like a week and a half period, man, I just pounded it out and got through it. Had this had been stretched out over the course of months and months, I don't know if I would have got it all done the same, mm -hmm. right? Like it's it's so easy to put off, put off, stress, think about it, become overwhelmed, then become ineffective. So yeah, I think Parkinson's law is, is really, it's a, it's a good, it's a good concept. Now, how do you apply that in your life? I think there, there has to be a little bit of discipline for yourself um, with setting strict timelines and making them really short, knowing that that's actually going to free up time and saying like, okay, I'm doing this today. Boom. Yeah, agreed. I, I give yourself a time limit. Get it done. I, I, I think that applies in whatever you're doing, but even in, in our reselling community, I think it's huge because especially when you're full time, you begin to tend to believe you have all this time and you allot all this time when if you just said, I'm going to get this done in two hours and I've done it myself, I'd be way more productive. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I see you got a lot here with the um, some of the steps he uses for the elimination. Um, the one that I found most intriguing was the don't multitask. It's one of the things that I've heard and, and talked about a lot um, is, man, you really can't actually multitask. Like you can you can task switch. You can switch. Between, I disagree. No. Well, I mean, science disagrees with you, but uh, Ooh, but no, Mike you can went there. you can you can switch between tasks back and forth but you can't do two tasks simultaneously. Now, there are certain tasks that are are automatic, right? Like you can chew gum and walk, right? Those two, those two things are, but two things that require mental attention, you can't do well at no, the same I, time. I, what I meant was, I disagree with you. Like you can do them. Whether you're going to do both of them well, that's a different story. Yeah, but nobody wants to do something poorly, right? So, so if it's like, hey, you well, need to... Not everything has to be done. Like, I don't know. Anyways. So the advice that you're giving is um, multitask, do things poorly. So like if you've got. I would say some things it's okay to do them poorly. I would say you execute on the things that matter and the things that kind of matter. You do as uh, Tim. Actually, Tim Ferriss does talk about it. I'm forgetting. But, but imagine this. Imagine you have exactly one hour to work on something mm -hmm. and you say, I'm going to spend the first half hour on task A and then I'm going to spend the second half hour on task B. And you do both of them well. The idea I think here is you can spend the entire hour doing both of them at the exact same time, like switching between the two, and you're going to do them both poorly. Now, if you've got the hour that you're going to spend anyways, you might as well try and do it well, right? You might as well do it the best you can by de devoting. Now, this the whole concept here is eliminating. So if it's something you don't need to do, then eliminate it. But mm -hmm. if it's something you're going to do, devote time to it. And if you if it's not worth devoting time to it, then don't do it. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I give me an example of something that's worth not worth doing well. I wouldn't say it's not not worth doing well. I would say there's some things that are mundane that can still get done, and if it's okay, it's okay. Like what? Right. Oh, what? You got to put me on the spot right now. Well, I mean, you're you're saying that's a tough like. Give me an example for like reselling. Like, what would be something that? Okay, reselling. I mean, you know, if you're trying, it happens all the time with us, right? We're we're trying to do listings. We want to watch a show. <laughs> we we got to be on social media. Like you can handle all those things. You could be okay on social media, right? I mean, as long as you don't accidentally type in the wrong thing or 
hit send the wrong DM, but right. But part of our issue now is, you know, we have a larger amount of followers and social media consumes part of our lives. Right now, I would say I'm never mediocre in that, but it doesn't take a lot just to get back to somebody. Yeah. Well, one of the things right? he does talk about, though, and setting specific times. So the idea would be, OK, I get watching TV and listing because one of those things it's really mundane. Well, but one of those things you're not doing, like you said, you kind of watch things that are like brainless, right? You're not trying mm -hmm. to like watch a documentary on like the history of World War II while you're listing. <laughs> or maybe. Okay. So, I mean, if you know enough about it, I guess, but you're not trying to like watch something life-changing while you're listing. It's kind of like listening to music while you do something. It can actually increase productivity. But if you're listing and responding to people and listing and responding to people might be better to say, I'm going to spend an hour listing without responding to people. And then Tim Ferriss's point is, and then pick a time where now this time is devoted specifically to replying. No, I, and I, there's, okay. So I'm all over the place on this one. I'll be real. So with our social media, you notice if you, if you follow us on Instagram, when do we post our Insta stories? You do them at night. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like usually like 1130 it's midnight. The reason being, and I've shared this on the pod, on the, on the, on the podcast on Instagram is that, I'm devoting the day to whatever reselling tasks need to get done, right? Because if I don't get those tasks done, bills aren't going to be paid. So I'm okay waiting till 11 and that story plays out the next day, right? But like at eBay Open, right? It was huge for us to post when things happen, right? Mike and I had a like a 45-minute discussion about how are we going to approach Instagram during eBay Open, right? And I wanted to go with the old model, but that wouldn't have been fair to those of you that couldn't make it. Because you wouldn't have been able to experience it with us, right? You would have gotten towards the end and it's already old news by the next day. So what, I, what I'll say is, yes, I think for certain things, it's a must. But I, I do, I don't know. I got to tell you, like when I, when, I, when I was teaching and even now that I'm going to be teaching, like if, if a kid's on their cell phone and I'm teaching, it doesn't bother me. I, I think something is happening where people are able to still take care of things and multitask. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I kind of, and I can't speak on the science because I haven't done the research. Yeah. I kind of disagree in, in some ways on that, but I do think that, um, I, it doesn't bother me either. A lot of times if a high school students on the phone because they're choosing to not care about what's happening in my class, their grade will. But if that. me and you are hanging out and we're talking and I'm accepting offers or whatever, it, it doesn't, but break you know, you know, like deep down, like if you're devoting mental time to something, you're missing little bits, bits of the conversation. I agree. You're not but that's what I mean. I think sometimes it's okay to miss things. That's Fair. what I'm saying. Fair. But, but so like one of the things Tim Ferriss talks a lot about, like specifically is like uses email a lot as an example. Like he will pick, he, Oh no, no. I, he, listen, I a hundred percent agree with what he says about email. Well, but that's the whole point though. Yeah. It's like, instead of all day long answering email, like every time an email comes in or checking your email multiple, pick a, a window in a day, once a day, a certain time frame, and say, this is the time that I respond to emails. I don't look at it otherwise. Yeah, and that's for, if we ever do a podcast about, I mean, we are kind of talking about growing yourself, you know, professionally here. But, you know, my time as administrator, I, got, I did get a lot of flack for not, I think we all did for not responding to emails. But I got to a place where I'd have 800 to 1,000 emails some days, like on a really crazy days, like hit my inbox. And I got to a place where I just checked it once and I was done until the next day. Or I asked my admin assistant to go through my emails mm. just because I could not function. I could not 
Like when I would have meetings with people, I cannot be present with them because I'm always getting alerts like, oh, man. Oh, no. Yep. And, and here's a funny thing. And I agree with Tim Ferriss when he says most things resolve themselves. I think that happened all the time. Yes. Yeah, so he says like, things you, that people if, thought were urgent. If you take urgent. yourself out of the situation, like he has one quote where he basically says like he he'll go on a trip and he tells his people like when I'm away on this trip, don't email me. Don't call me. Um, there's no emergencies. Like, while I'm not here. There's not not an emergency. Figure it out. And he goes, I get back. And it's all been figured out, like things that they would have sent to me. And he kind of has this idea that like emergencies, yeah, resolve themselves, go away when you take yourself out of the equation. And I think some of that's true. I think also, though, like depending on the type of job you have and it's job dependent, like as a teacher, I don't feel like I could have not checked multiple times. I mean, certain ones like parent emails. Yeah, like it's probably a good idea to only at a certain time respond all to all the educators that are listening out there. Yeah, I mean, or, or if you work in an office, right, like if you if you're getting certain emails from important customers or or your boss, like you might need to be on top of those because it might be a timely thing like, hey, meeting was changed. You need to be here at such and such a time. Yeah, right? But there's always those people that like you make sure you pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. You right? need to know those those specific. I, I did want to share, though, page 84. Uh, when he there's a quote on there, he 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 challenges you on a weekly. Thank you, Michael, for moving the mic towards my mouth. My, you don't I, have to mention it every time. I, I, I know. know. He, but I want to, you know, if this becomes a problem, let me know because I'm, I'm working. I'm working. On a weekly and daily macro level, attempt to take Monday and or Friday off as well as leave work at 4 p.m. This will focus you to prioritize more effectively and quite possibly develop a social life. I love that quote. Okay. You're still off the mic. Though. Uh, okay. I love that quote. There's two reasons I love that quote. So a lot of you, a lot of you don't know my situation, but my situation is I have my children, uh, my two boys, four days a week, right? And then the three days I don't, I work like there's no tomorrow. I, I mean, I, I literally from the morning I wake up to the late evening, even if I'm traveling, I'm working. And my kid attest to that. That's how I roll. The days I do have my boys, I devote myself to them. Now I do do some work. I'm not gonna say I, I completely ignore eBay. And Amazon, I do do some sourcing. I do some listing, but it's not anywhere at the level of those 72 hours that I'm, that I have. So I really think it's important. Like we talk about work-life balance. We talked about this hustle at home mom. We talked about the Craigslist center. I mean, to me, it's like the buzzword right now, work-life balance. I, I, I throw it out there. Try this, right? If you're a full-time reseller, I don't know, maybe I don't know if you want to cut a day, but maybe cut half a day and see if you're more productive in that half a day. If you're a part-time seller, you know, and you know, and you're maybe you're working every single night from that 7 p.m. to whatever, 2 a.m. doing reselling, cut one of those nights out. See if you're more productive with that one less evening. I'm gonna do this myself. I think I'm gonna devote a day. Well, except for you know, on Instagram, because <laughs> that's what we do. Uh to eliminate anything. For example, this past Sunday, I went to the beach with my kids all day. We hung out. We went to dinner. Did absolutely no reselling. But you bet tomorrow, I'm going to be all over it. And I'm going to make sure things get done to allow me to have another day like that. And so I think this is a great concept. I challenge you guys to try it. Let us know how things go in the comments. Uh, when we do our next level of book review, send us DMs. And interested in what you guys find out if you try that. Good stuff. I, I agree. Take a take a break. Take a take a little Sabbath rest and and Sabbath improve 
improve your overall life. So I think we'll we'll um, kind of just skip over some of the low information diet as far as what we talked about in like his approach to being involved with like information and media and stuff. But I do think he does argue and say like, kind of remove yourself a little bit from media that's that's not productive. If it's productive, utilize it. If it's not productive, um, you know, if you're just wasting time reading articles that don't help you, then maybe maybe you can utilize that time for for better things. Uh, but he does give some examples of ways that you can eliminate time that's wasted through emails, phone calls, and just like chit chatting that people do. And I love some of the examples that he gave. And I I, I want to use these way more often. Um, like one of them is like when somebody calls you, right? So his example is somebody gives you a phone call and you know, this can turn into a long phone call. He says, answer the phone like this. Um, hi, it's so-and-so like, and when they tell you who they are, say like, okay, I'm right in the middle of something. How can I help you? And, and give them the, how can I help you? Or what do you need? And when they say, well, I can call back later. Don't let them off the line say, no, no, no. I've got a moment. How can I help you? And give them. So now there's a sense of urgency. So instead of them small chatting long time about something, they're immediately going to tell you what the, the issue is. And if it's not a big deal, then you can say, okay, well then send it to me in an email, right? So you're getting the information, but you're not like stuck on the phone, small chatting for a long time. And even same thing with like people coming up to you to talk to you. He, I don't know if I would do this one because I don't like the idea of like completely lying, but he's like, I'll, I'll put well, headphones in. Can you like halfway lie? Well, I, yeah, I guess, but okay. he's got headphones in and he, he said, even if I wasn't listening to music, if somebody walked up to me to start chit chatting about something, I knew they were going to ask me a question or something work related. I would act like I'm on the phone and like grab the mic and say, hold on one second. Um, yeah. Can I help you? And when they say like, oh, I can come back later, say imagine, same thing. Imagine all the people that have had those interactions with Tim Ferriss. How do they feel? I mean, I'm just saying. Well, but like, let's be honest, like there's a lot of times like you know, a coworker comes into your room and they've got a question to ask you and you're right in the middle of something that's really important. And you're just like, oh my goodness, like this is going to turn into a 20 minute conversation when really it's like, I can, Mike I can would, give you, Mike would do that to me all the time. I can give you the, the answer in 30 seconds, right? Like what's your question? Let me give you the answer. Yeah. Or, or if it's something I can't do, say, Hey, send me an email and I'll, I'll send you the instructions later. Okay. I got, I have two reflections on this chapter and, and we'll move on to the next one. One is this chapter, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter seven, actually the in chapter six, it's a, it's a whole nother, I don't know. I, I kind of, mm, I think you need to be fully informed citizen. I'm yeah. not, a, I'm not a fan of like reading headlines on the way to work and let that define what you think about things or asking people. I think you need to do your own research, but that's just me. All right. Chapter seven. To me, if you're in any kind of, you know, management or supervisor or school administrator or something where, where you are in charge of people and a leader and guiding people. Chapter seven to me is one of the most important, I think, chapters in any kind of book as far as time management. I will, and I'll tell you from my own experience, I apply these principles not even knowing that, I don't, I, don't, I think these are multiple books. I don't think it's just Tim Ferriss. But this, you know, about having your assistant take care of things about, you know, reducing your email time, reducing your phone call time, putting an end time to meetings, having an agenda for your meetings, like everything that's discussed, gold. So if you haven't read the book, or if you don't have the book, if anything, you want to get a sample preview or you get the Kindle, this is the go-to chapter that will, I would say, immediately change your life the moment you implement them. 
that Monday or that first day you go back to work without a doubt. Cause I will tell you, I first two years of my life as an administrator, I did not implement these and I was miserable by year three. I implemented these and my life changed. Now there's a caveat to all of that. We're dealing with people. We're not dealing with robots. We're not dealing with pets. We're dealing with real humans with real feelings. So with all that being said about, you know, hey, you know, let's, you know, try to shorten the conversation with an individual. Let's reduce them to an email, even though they send you a voicemail. Let's reduce the meeting and even approach your boss about trying to get out of a meeting. Those things I think you need to tread lightly on. That's my own personal opinion. Because there are some people that need that time and they need to feel listened to. Then there are those situations where a conversation will avoid any kind of complications that an email or a text or voicemail can bring along. So I would say on that, tread carefully and understand you're dealing with real humans with real emotions and feelings. Yeah. And that's my two cents. Yep, you got to be tactful. I think that's I think that's key. You got to know who who you need to spend time talking to and and who you can kind of I don't want to say blow off but be more realistic as far as time. Um but, you know, ultimately if it comes down to you've only got so much time in the day and you've got important things to do, you know, you got to be careful with that and and not letting your letting other people waste your time. Um for maybe like you said, sometimes it's they need that conversation, but sometimes it's they just want to talk to anybody, right? Like they'll go to anybody. I do think maybe one of the books we'll do in the future is like, what's the, how to win friends and influence people by right. Andrew Carnegie. I think, yeah, isn't that like it, some of those concepts in there, like there was one concept in there, like I'll never forget. Like when you talk to somebody act like the things they're telling you are the most interesting things like you've ever heard. Like, always, like always, always. It's huge. Like, people want to feel valued. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, you gotta be careful. Don't be a robot. No, don't be fake. You gotta be authentic about yeah. it. But yeah, so so do both, right? Like if it's somebody coming to you because they need to have a conversation with you, accept that. But if it's somebody like that just has a work thing that's not really like personal and it's just like little things, you know. So and, and how that applies to reselling, I mean, maybe different ways, right? Especially I think it 100% applies to reselling. I would say when you're at a garage sale, when you're trying to break, you know, and trying to broker a deal with a wholesaler, when you're, you know, trying to network with other resellers, I, I, I definitely 100% agree that you got to make your choices of what valuable time you spend. But again, with that caveat of you're dealing with real people. So, All right. Are we ready to roll on to our last section we're going to discuss for this? Yeah. Automation. Yeah. So, so automation is the next thing uh, that kind of comes up after, you know, like chapter seven, I think was really great. And there was a lot of good things that came in there batching work together i think was really important too automation was the one that i think this he's kind of known for um this book is kind of known for and i think it's something that i've never tried i'm actually interested in trying but a big part of it is like the virtual assistant and um, i know that a lot of resellers use them for various things and as i'm reading through this it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of things that he talks about having a virtual assistant for that you wouldn't even think about like a lot of personal things a lot of kind of like lighthearted, he even has a joke like in there, like he had his personal assistant write an apology letter to his wife because he forgot something, right? Like, like so there's... Real people with real feelings yeah. and emotions. That's all I'm going to say. So, but I mean, it was more of like a, a funny type of a situation. But you know, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I tried to think in my own life, reselling wise, like I could 
I want to try a vir virtual assistant specifically for Poshmark. I want to have, try it out, see if I can get one to like share closets, um, share my stuff, like people's stuff and see if that brings in more Poshmark sales. I've had a few of our listeners talk to us about that, that they do virtual assistants, but I'm trying to think in other areas of my life. Like I have a hard time thinking that somebody else can do the things I do. And, and that's one of the comments he says, like, if I can do whatever it is better than somebody else, why would I pay them to do it? And his response is, because then it frees up time for you to do the things that you really want to do. Right. Like I even think with this, like, okay, us doing this podcast, we spend a lot of time, you spend a lot of time um, doing a lot of the Instagram stuff and a lot of the research for the podcast. I spend a lot of time editing it. I can't imagine like outsourcing the editing of this podcast to somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I know I can do a good job of it. And I know that like, I know how I like it. And, but there's the idea of like, would it be better? Would it be better to maybe get 10% less quality and pay somebody to do it if it frees up more time for us to focus on another aspect of the podcast. I don't know. Well, there's a few things. So I want to rewind a little bit. I, I think the end of chapter seven kind of goes into chapter eight. So he mentioned on page 109, empowerment failure refers to being unable to accomplish a task without first obtaining permission or information. It is often a case of being micromanaged or micromanaging someone else, both of which consume your time. Then a couple lines later goes for the entrepreneur. The goal is to grant as much information and independent decision-making ability to employees or contractors as possible. Right. And so this kind of deals with automation. And the reason I bring this up is, so now I want to talk about having a helper. Okay. A helper. <laughs> a helper. Okay. An assistant. An assistant, whatever you want to call it. Number one, to me, empowerment is difficult. It is hard. Right. Because you're telling the person you can make decisions on behalf of me without consulting. me, Right. I will tell you as a school administrator, one of the best moves I made. Right. Trusting my faculty to do a great job and, you know, not micromanaging. Who likes to be micromanaged? OK. I mean, there's some, but it's very few. As far as in the reselling world, you know, there's some there's another quote, Tim uh, Ferris, um, page 110. It's amazing how someone's IQ seems to double as soon as you give them responsibility and indicate that you trust them. I think that's huge. So people have asked us to do a podcast on how to find a helper, how to train a helper and so on. So here's a little bit uh, that I wanted to share. So I've had, I want to say in my time reselling four different helpers. Okay. And of those helpers, I found that the number one thing that was key was not the number one thing, but one of a few number one, can there be a few number ones? One of a few important items was do all the training as much as possible up front. But once you let go, let go. Because you will make yourself miserable because no one, and you've heard this quote before, no one will do things better than you can when it comes to your business. So with that being said, there's times you got to let your helper run with things, right? Whether it's pictures, whether it's listings. Now, obviously, you're going to have some kind of oversight. But you got to be willing, you know, the next part says, um, page 111, if you are a micromanaging entrepreneur, realize that even if you can do something better than the rest of the world, it doesn't mean that that's what you should be doing. If it's part of the minutia, empower others to act without interrupting you, set the rules in your favor, limit access to your time, force people to define their requests before spending time with them and batch routine menial tasks to prevent postponement of more important projects. Do not let people interrupt you. Find your focus and you'll find your lifestyle. And this is what I'll say with this. So 
when I got a helper, I struggled. I struggled for two reasons. Number one, paying them. That was tough. Knowing that, and you know, I've, I've, I think I've already gone up four dollars since my initial. And the reason being is, I recognized that there was a lot of competition out there, and and for for my helper to prioritize my business, I needed to pay you know comparable wages. The other part of it was, I had to be okay with not everything being a hundred percent. The moment I did that life got easier. And guess what? My sales didn't change. Actually, the sales increased because I had more listings and more items. So do I still talk to my helper? I mean, it's not like I never talked to her, but I will only talk to her about what she's, the work she's done. If number one, it's a major flaw or at the end when I'm picking stuff up or dropping stuff off, no other time will I have a conversation. Why? Because ultimately the work is done. It's never going to be at what I want it to be. And I had to come to grips with that. And the return on investment is huge in comparison to me spending all that time or not having a helper at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, he had, he explained having a virtual assistant um, doing different things for him, but he still was so stressed out with life or at least one of the, I think it was somebody else who was using it as an example. But the person was still so stressed out with aspects of life that they're like, you know what? I have to go see a counselor or a psychiatrist every once in a while. Maybe I can just have my my virtual assistant call the the psychologist so and bad. like get information for me. And she can just summarize it in an email and, and couldn't do that. So he goes, well, then what's the next best thing? Okay, I'm going to have my virtual assistant look up like basically advice on how to deal with stress and send that to me in, in emails. And then beyond that, that I called her up or I, I typed on the thing. I stress every night about X, Y, Z, whatever this thing is. Can you do me a favor and just stress for me? Like just so deal bad. with it. And the, the person was like, yeah, every night at that time or every, like I will, I will be thinking about the problem. And he goes, I slept better knowing that somebody else is thinking about the problem. And you know, I don't know how much is, is can really be said about that. But I think, I think there is something to be said about like, you know, what they can do for you and not having that stress, even though, yeah, they might not do it as perfectly as you will. I mean, some of the the email examples they gave were, you know, it's grammatically not always correct and things are a little awkward. It's, it's somebody sending an email on your behalf to somebody and maybe an important client and it's, they're not a native English speaker. And so it comes across not the way you would do it, but you didn't have to do it. You weren't thinking about it. And so that freedom, that peace of mind can be very helpful. In fact, even said, um, like one group of, of virtual assistants, he was getting so many emails every day about like, what do I do with this customer? What do I do with this situation? That he finally said, look, if you can resolve the issue with the customer for $100 or less, just do it. Don't even tell, just, just do it. And then at the end of the month or whatever, send me whatever you've done. He said, immediately reduce the amount of emails he was getting by like 90%. And he said, most issues were able to be resolved for like $20 or less. And they, but because they were empowered, they made better decisions, you know, mm -hmm. so he didn't have to deal with it. It's all the, the amount of money that like, okay, I, I'd be willing to, to not see that hundred dollars for that to go away, to not have to be seeing all these emails. Customer wants to return on this and was unhappy with this and just get it out of the way. I don't want to think about it. You do it. If it's more than a hundred contact me. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about that. If you can hire a good virtual assistant and I don't know what all I would use one for. I mean, they're, they're using them for a lot of things like managing their, their schedules and and calling, making dentist appointments and all of these things. And it almost seems like it'd be as much work to explain to them what to do um, as just calling and doing it yourself. But I don't know, like 
if they're as cheap as the book says they are, anywhere from like four to ten dollars an hour, and you can go through companies and get some decent ones. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll give it a try and say, like, what's two hundred dollars? I'll 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 get a virtual assistant for a few weeks and give them some tasks and see what's if it's useful and you know, maybe maybe it it improves my reselling or some other aspect of my life. Maybe it can have them do research on a lesson plan for me. I don't know. We'll see. Well, uh, but we have we've used VAs before, right? When we were designing our logo and and stuff like that. That's that's a that's a contractor though. That's not uh, yeah, a virtual assistant. Uh, no, I get it, but it it's still for us, right? It'll give us time to not stress about it, and then we develop what we finally we ended up on our own coming up with. But it cut out a lot of that work. Right. And that's the ultimate goal is, you know, in this entire book is right to cut out your time, right, to to make that time work for you, to make it valuable for you, to make it worthwhile. So whether it's from VAs uh, to what we initially were talking to talking about, about, you know, finding ways right to cut out those things or, you know, even choosing. Right. We even talk about the dream line he talked about. Right finding what it takes to get there and then seeing if you can cut off those hours to still make it possible. You know, I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed this first half of the book in the sense that it made me revisit ideas that I've kind of forgotten about and think about things differently. Like, am I making the most of my time? Yeah. Now what I'm interested in seeing is the second half of the book, which we'll be doing uh, releasing two weeks from now. Um, is there going to be more practical? Cause I feel like a lot of this stuff is some practical things. But so far, I don't feel like I can only work four hours a week and be good. Well, so, he keeps saying, you know, I'll yeah. let you know soon. I'll explain how. Yes. So I don't know. Maybe it's all maybe. maybe it's all saved for the last half. I'd like to see some practical like here's here's how what a day in the life of a teacher working four hours or a reseller only working four hours and how much of my job can actually be. I'd see reselling is probably a little easier for that, but how much of it can be automated and will it work? Right. Like. And let us know. Maybe you've got your entire platform and the way you sell is is almost entirely automated. And how is that working for you? And tell us your secrets. We'd love to uh, <laughs> expose the them. No, I'm joking. <laughs> all right. Hey, with all that being said, thanks for joining us for the four-hour workweek level up review part one. Part two will happen in two weeks. Make sure with everything happening in your world to be real. Be relevant. And be reselling. Peace. Peace.